in this church that gathers on Friday morning on the week before Christmas, the Friday before we celebrate his birth, we are here together to adore him who was sent by the Father. It is truly a privilege. But if I can be very frank with you, it has been a little bit challenging for me. This is my first, how do I say this, Christmas in the desert. You know, it's my first time not being with my siblings and my parents and, and being in and, and just what I'm used to in my cultural context. And if I can be transparent with you on a Friday morning, it's been challenging. Not, not that I have regretted coming here or not that I would doubt God's clear call. I love being here, but at the same time, I'm a human with emotions. And I've kind of struggled this week, and I've spoken to different people that God has just put in my path, in our faith family, who are here this morning, that have been so encouraging. I spoke to one lady yesterday. She's amazing. And she said, guess what? It doesn't get any better. I was like, thank you so much for the encouraging words. And she says, it doesn't. I have years of not having been home. And it just, it, doesn't, it just doesn't go away. You still long to be home. But then she said, but it's worth it. And it was a reminder that even though we are far from home, and all of us that are here today, I'm sure, most of you, if I asked for a show of hands, would say, I wish I was other than sitting here. Not, not that you hate sitting here, but your heart would long to be with your closest friends and family in your own cultural context, for indeed we're all expatriates here. And yet, God has brought us together. And we have this beautiful reality called a faith family. And we're in this together. And indeed, it's worth it whatever inconveniences that we may have to experience by living here, the truth is that living here is incredible. And I'm grateful to live here because the opportunities for the gospel to impact in the 1040 window in this Muslim world is remarkable. The fact that we have the privilege of worshiping Christ together, the week that we celebrate his birth, is something that we should not take lightly or for granted. And the fact that you live here is for a purpose and God has something specific for you to do. Now, we know that as a church, we exist for a particular reason. Our mission is to glorify God by making and developing disciples. That is why we are here. We exist to glorify God. And we do that by making and developing disciples. And we did it in India, and we do it here. And we're going to be further challenged by God's word, but at the same time encouraged by it. And so we are in a teaching series called He Promised as one of the elders Gilbert alluded to and read out of the prophets earlier this morning. This series, referring to he promised, we, we began it a few weeks ago, this journey. We began in the beginning, where God in the beginning, he created the heavens and the earth. We looked at the book of Genesis, and we have been learning how the entire Bible is not disconnected. It is one continuous Story And as a matter of fact, next week when we conclude this series, we're looking at the book of Revelation. And so we will see from Genesis and then to Revelation, it is indeed one continuous story. And it has one theme, and it has one main character, and that one theme is redemption. That is the Bible is about. It is about God's redemption, and it is through one main character, the Messiah, 
who has come, who was born of a woman to save us from our sins. The entire Bible points to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we've learned that in the beginning, God created Adam for Adam to know God, for Adam to enjoy him, for Adam to work and to reflect the very glory and beauty of God in creation, and then for Adam to make God's name known. But we also read in the story that he rebelled. Adam committed a high treason against the king. And because of this treason, because of this corruption, because our representative Adam, who was the head of humanity, sinned, it brought corruption. It brought spoil and death and disease into our world. But we see in the middle of our rebellion in the middle of human sinfulness, what you see is God showing the beauty of his heart, of his grace and his mercy. And he reached down into the pits of despair that humanity had brought upon itself, and God made a promise. Right there, immediately after we sinned, God made a promise. He sought the guilty. He covered the shame and he protected the fearful. That's what he did with Adam and Eve, the consequences of sin. And he promised that he would one day send a descendant of Eve, a child that would be born of a woman who would one day defeat our enemy. That was the promise. And he's been revealing throughout the scriptures in this singular theme of how it all points to Jesus, which is what we celebrate this Tuesday that he has indeed come, that the Messiah who was long promised has come. And so we saw that two weeks when we looked at Isaiah, how 800 years before Jesus was born, there was the promise that he would come. And then last week, Micah preached, when I was in India, that 600 years before Jesus, the prophet Ezekiel promised that the Messiah would one day come, and he would be a shepherd who would care for his people, and he would nurture us. And so we see that God has made a promise to us, a promise to save us from our sin through his Messiah, through his anointed one. And he kept that promise at that first Christmas. And so we can trust him. We really can. I know we, we forget that sometimes. I think life can get so busy. We can get so wrapped up with, quite honestly, ourselves that we can forget that there is a God in heaven and he is in control. Like today's doomsday, right? Is it, isn't today, according to the Mayan calendar, the end of the world? Well, we're still here. Clearly not. The Mayans got it wrong. Question? Agree. I agree wholeheartedly. Interpretation. Here, here's the bottom line. With all of the mass hysteria that has been going around right now on this is supposedly the end of the world and, or as doomsday, not true because we have a God in heaven that is in control. He is sovereign and no man knows the day when God will consummate his plan. No man knows. Only God the Father, who eternity past, devised his plan. He's accomplishing it through his Son. All of human history points to a culminates in Jesus, Messiah. 
And I don't care what anyone says. No man knows when the end will come. But I can assure you of this. It will come in God's time. When he has decided that his plan has been accomplished. That he promised long ago would be accomplished through his son. And so we don't have to fear doomsday. We can trust our father. We can truly trust and then we must act on that trust. This kind of reminds me of a time not long ago, a few weeks ago, um, an evening where I was reading a book, which for me is just the pinnacle of human existence at times, to just sit and just read and be undisturbed. And so I was reading, and my little five-year-old princess comes up to me and says, hey, Daddy, can we have a tea party? And I wasn't paying attention to her because I was reading my book. And so I said, yeah, sure. And so she runs away, and I'm like, great, so I can keep reading now. So I'm just sitting there, and I'm just reading. And now, surely, the five-year-old understands that Daddy was much too busy to go upstairs that second. I mean, surely the five-year-old understands that I meant later, when I get around to it. Whenever I'm done reading, then I will go upstairs and have a tea party with her. So I, I keep reading. I just completely ignored her. And then a few minutes later, the other female in my life, who's a grown-up one, who um, holds me accountable at times, my, my bride, in a very exasperated voice says, aren't you going to go play with Abby? And I look at her and I say, right now? <laughs> she just gives me this glare, which you guys know what I'm talking about, right? And you know that look your wife gives you, like, uh-oh, I'm in trouble now. And... Uh, and so she says, yes, she's waiting for you. And so all of a sudden, I come to my senses and I realize, oh, oh, she meant right now. Like, she ran upstairs, had set up the whole thing. The dishes were out. The tea was made. You know, she was waiting for her dad to come have a tea party. She had a date. And so at that point, I realized, oh. So I put the book down and ran upstairs and had a tea party. It was wonderful. So here's the point. Is that little girl heard her father say something. And she trusted her father. Her daddy said yes, and so therefore she acted on it. Immediately went upstairs and got ready for the date. How often do we do that? How often do we just trust our father? Where we read it, we know he is with us. We know he's going to provide. We know he's kept his promise. We know that he's trustworthy, and yet we worry. And yet we don't act on it. We don't go upstairs and have a tea party because we think he's not going to show up. Thankfully, God the Father in heaven is a much better father than I am because I'm a flawed father that needs grace as bad as you do. But our Father in heaven is light years, infinitely better than I am, and he is trustworthy. And so as we approach this Christmas season, as, as we consider this series on, on our God who has promised, who has sent his Son, we've been talking about the promise of redemption, the promise of hope. Last week, today, it's that the promise is kept. So that's today's message is that indeed this promise that he was sent as Messiah to save us, has been kept. And so in your first blank there, as we jump into Galatians, your first set of blanks, is that the message of Christmas 
this message that we're about to celebrate in next week, this message of Christmas, is indeed the message of the gospel. So that's your blanks. Message of Christmas is the message of the gospel. And so we see the culmination of God's plan with the baby born in a stable in Bethlehem. You see, we live in a world of broken promises. I mean, we really do. If you stop and just look for just a moment in our world, there are broken promises all over. You have wedding vows that are broken. And so these broken wedding vows lead to then broken marriages. What you have is politicians and government leaders that make promises to their people, and then the politicians just break those promises and leave whole nations broken. And you have in the workplace, you have, you have employers and owners and bosses and managers that make promises to their employees. And then they just break those contracts and break their promises, which then leads to then broken finances in homes. And this is just to cut off my head, a few examples of brokenness and of promises that are just not kept. And so when we approach God's word and we see that our God has a promise-making but more importantly, a promise-keeping God. It really is good for the soul to be reminded that in the world of broken promises, our God never breaks the promise that he would save us from our sin, that he would bear the burden of our sin upon himself. We're going to look here this morning on three specific reasons on why God has kept his promise. We know that he has, but let's look at the reasons why and why this matters to you and me today. So your first blank there on God kept his promise to send his son. Why? Well, number one, he did it in order to resolve. The next blank there is resolve. To resolve what? To resolve his problem. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're like, wait, what are you talking about? God doesn't have any problems. I have problems. I got, I'm married, I have kids, I have a job, I've got problems. You think God doesn't have any problems? He's God. Fair enough. So if you already had that thought, I will acknowledge that it's a fair thought that I've thought through as well. But see, here's the thing you have to understand, is that the gospel, God's word that reveals the gospel, is not primarily about you or your perceived problems. Listen to me. The Bible is not about you. It's about the glory of Christ. And it's not here simply to address our problems as we think of them. It's because the we can approach church or the Bible or spirituality or approach God in general. And we think, God, I have a problem. I need a better life. And I need a better life now. Or you say, no, what I need is better kids. Or I need a better husband. Or I need a better marriage in general. I need to get married. Or I just need better finances. Or I need more self-actualization. And so we approach God with our little problems, and we think that that's what God is there for, to just be like a genie in the bottle. We rub the bottle, and he comes out and says, your wish is my command, and then we say, well, I want you to, and then we give him the instruction. But you see, the Bible is not primarily about you, it's about him and what he is doing in the world, and so there is a much bigger problem 
that sometimes we don't realize, and the problem is sin, much deeper. And you see, the reality is that when I say that God has resolved his problem, and I'm defining it as sin, you're thinking, wait a second. If my problem is sin, why are you referring to it as God's? Whose problem is this? Is the sin problem, is it my problem, or is it God's problem? This is an important question that we have to really understand. This indeed is God's problem. Many of you here in the room think to yourself that you're fine. I know, I already know this. A a room even this size, with this many people in the room, I guarantee you there are people sitting here right now that if we asked you in private, not in here, but in private, and said, do you believe that you sin? You would say, well, I mean, I make mistakes, and I mean, I'm not perfect, but who is perfect? Sure, I make mistakes, but sin? Is my soul corrupted? Do I really have a serious problem with sin where I deserve to be condemned and judged by God? Some of you would say, no. No, of course not. I'm not that bad. I'm just fine how I am. But the Bible says otherwise. The Bible says that we have sin, that we have a very serious problem. So why do I call this problem that is indeed yours and mine, why do I say that God sent his son to resolve his problem? Here's why. Here's the problem. God is holy and God is just. He is the judge. He set up the universe and so he alone can judge. And you and I have sinned. So how can a holy and righteous just judge, justify, and accept condemned sinners? How can a holy and righteous judge accept and even embrace condemned sinners? You see, God is love. He wants to be close to you, but you and I have offended him, broken his laws, shamed ourselves, and we deserve judgment, and so therefore, There is a problem here. The problem is that God wants to be close to you, but he can't because of your sin. God had a problem. He could have looked down at us in our sinful humanity and said, oh, that sinful nature of yours. Yeah, well, that's a you problem. That's not a me problem. God could have done that and been justified in doing so. But instead... He took the burden upon himself, and the solution is the gospel. The gospel is God's solution to the sin problem, which he took upon himself to resolve, which is why the second member of the eternal trinity became a human being. We'll look at that in more detail on Monday night at our Christmas Eve service, of why it matters that the eternal Son of God became a human, and why that matters for you today. But enough to say this morning that he did. He became a human, and that changes everything. And he died on the cross for you and for me. At that first Christmas, he came, and then at Easter, he died, but was resurrected. And he paid the penalty as the perfect sacrifice to resolve the problem and allow us to be forgiven and to enter into a relationship 
with him. And so thus God maintains his holiness while displaying his love and thus resolving the problem of sin. Galatians chapter 3, our text that we're looking at this morning, describes it. We'll look at it by overview this morning. A lot in here. But in Galatians 3, verses 16 through chapter 4, verse 3, we won't read all of it this morning, but in your own time you certainly can. That long passage describes how God resolved the sin problem. That's your problem, but he took it upon himself. And so in verse 16, again, Galatians 3.16, here's what the Apostle Paul wrote as inspired by the Spirit of God. He says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, but referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. So he's saying one. There is one offspring. There is one person that that promise made to Abraham is about. And so when God taught humanity, he made a promise to, to Adam that he would save humanity. He reaffirmed that promise to Abraham, saying, through one of your descendants, I'm going to accomplish my promise, and he will bless all the families of the world. And so you can read in Genesis 12 through 17, it describes these promises that God has made to Abraham. And it points to Jesus. That's what it is. And so it's by faith. It's by promise. Salvation cannot be earned. It is given freely through the offspring, the seed, the descendants of Abraham. And so it was through a promise. But here's a question. If you've read the Old Testament, you know this. There's a bunch of laws in there, right? If you've read the Old Testament, you've read laws. There's a whole lot of laws, hundreds of them. In the first five books of the Bible, specifically in Exodus and Leviticus, many, many laws, and do this and do this and don't do that and do this and all of these laws. Read it. Read, read Leviticus. You'll read law after law after law. And so maybe you're wondering, as the author here, Paul, is making the point on, okay, if salvation is free, received by faith alone, given as a promise that one day a Redeemer would come to save the world, well, then why did God give all the laws? There are people who think to themselves that in the Old Testament, people were saved by following the laws, and then in the New Testament, we're saved by Jesus. Is that true? No. No. The law could not save anyone. That was not the purpose of the law. And in the following verses, verses 17 through 23, in this very same chapter, it describes clearly how the law could not save anyone. So then why did God give the law? And how do you reconcile this promise of salvation that God is going to freely give and this law? The law did primarily two things. It revealed God's holiness and it revealed our sinfulness. The law revealed the holiness of God and how perfect and righteous He is, and it also revealed how far we fall short of God's holiness. And by the way, not only did God's Word reveal His perfect standard of holiness, God knew that we could never do it. God knew that humans could never maintain the law. We can't do it. 
How do I know if you read it in your own time again in Deuteronomy 31, verses 24 through 29? Moses, who wrote the law. Moses, who was a person that God gave the law to. He wrote Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He's the very man that God gave the scriptures to. Through him, in Deuteronomy, we see that God clearly knows that we can't keep it. That we're not good enough. That we will never be able to be good enough to earn God's favor. And so you think, okay, so we're saved by faith and we can't keep the law, so how does all this work? We'll read the next verse, verse 23. I'm sorry, verse 24, Galatians 3, 24. So then, he's saying, okay, so here's the law score. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. So the law was our guardian, and we're justified, we're made right in God's eyes by what? Faith. So the law was a guardian, and we're justified by faith. Well, what does that word guardian mean? It means teacher. It's like schoolmaster in some translations, you'll see that. It refers to someone that has a pupil. And the student has a guardian, a teacher, someone that is mentoring and instructing. And so you see here that the law was a guardian, a teacher that was showing us our sin. And so when you read the law, you realize, man, I fall short. You realize, I'm not doing this. I could try, but I know I'm going to fail tomorrow, if not today, twice or more. And so we know that. So the law was designed to show us our sin and to guard, to protect us, if you will, to point to the need for someone else to come to keep God's law, to keep God's holy standard, because we, left to ourselves, could not do it. And so the law was meant to show us our sin and point to one person that would eventually be able to keep it. And so Christmas is here. Jesus He has maintained the law on your behalf. So we know that we're sinners and we are saved through faith and the work that Jesus did on the cross. Verse 25, it says, But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. We no longer need the law to show us in the sense that we already know. We know that we're sinners. We are clearly aware. The law has done what it was supposed to do. The law has allowed us to see our sin. Points to a Savior. Verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Faith. No one that you will see in heaven got there by their own works to keep the law. Every single person from the very beginning through the end of time that will be with us, in heaven, will be there because of their faith. Not because of what they did, because of what Christ did for us. Faith. We're justified through it alone. Through Jesus alone, for his glory alone. In verse 29, in this paragraph, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. The promise given to Abraham belongs to you. The promise 
that said, I will send your descendants, your seed that will bless the whole world, all the families. And we see in our church all the families of the world congregated together. And so we can see this and we understand this. This is remarkable. We should not take this lightly. He has come to resolve our sin problem. We have hope, even when it's hard. His name is Jesus. Second thing he is that God kept his promise in order to reveal his wisdom. To reveal his wisdom. Verse 4. Chapter 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. And so in the fullness of time, God kept his promise like he said he would. And a woman gave birth to a son. And so many centuries earlier, when God had promised to save humanity, he promised that the descendant would come. And the promise was repeated over and over to different prophets and so forth. And then it culminated with the coming of Jesus. He made a promise and then he kept that promise in the fullness of time. Do you realize that Jesus came at the perfect time in human history? You see, the Romans had conquered the entire known world. And they had set up this incredible road system. Roads that still exist to this day. The Romans devised and built these roads for better transportation and to have the army to move quickly across the empire and to keep the borders strong and to keep peace. And so these roads were used not just by the Roman soldiers. Who else used these roads? Paul and Barnabas and Peter and many others that traveled on these roads and did what? Carried the gospel. These roads allowed the gospel to flourish. But it wasn't just the roads. It was that there was peace. It was called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. There were no wars going on. Every enemy was already destroyed. There was this incredible peace that was attained through force, granted, but nonetheless, strong borders, strong military, and a fairly peaceful environment. There were no revolutions, no civil wars, and so what you had was people who were not fighting wars. They were just out living life and seeking for meaning. And then comes this man who says, I will give you eternal life. And the message fell not on deaf ears, but on hearts that were ready to hear. And if that wasn't enough, for the first time at that point in history, there was one language. The Greek language was spoken across the empire, across different ethnicities. They all spoke the same language, Greek. It was the common tongue. It was the tongue of commerce, much like English is today. Everyone speaks English for commerce, for business. Well, in the ancient world in the first century, it wasn't English, it was Greek. And so they all spoke the same language. Why was that helpful? It allowed the gospel to flourish. And so you see God working human history. You think that was by accident? You think that it was just happenstance? that the world happened to be ready for Jesus? Or do you think there was someone behind the scenes that was orchestrating and working human history to that point to send his son? God is in control of human history. 
He knows what he is doing. Even when we have elections that we know are corrupted, when we have elections that we know are rigged, and when you have governments that are oppressive and evil, and we wonder, God, where are you? I've spoken to many of you. When you talk about your home country, and, and you usually talk about it with glowing terms about how beautiful it is and these sites and this history. But most of you from different countries then say, oh, but it's not how it used to be because of this government or because of this policy or because of the economy or whatever it is. And we can kind of get a depression over our countries not being what they used to be. Well, the truth is that it's not getting better. I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news. Sinfulness still reigns supreme here until Christ returns and consummates his plan. But we can trust him. And God revealed his wisdom by working human history to bring us Jesus. But by the way, it's not just that. It's not just that God worked history to the perfect point to bring Jesus. It's more than that. You see, the time was fulfilled with the coming of Jesus. All of the promises in the Old Testament all pointed to Jesus. And so with his coming, it made it the fullness of time. And so you see both happening concurrently, side by side, God working human history while fulfilling all the promises in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. He is how we date our years, 2,000 years ago is when he came. He is the point of human history. He is the pinnacle of our existence. He is why we breathe. Jesus is why we exist. He's why we're here this morning, why we get up in the morning. He's what gives us hope when we miss our family back in our home country. He's what makes life worth it. If it's not for him, then why even get up in the morning? Why even bother, if not for Jesus? He's everything. And in the age where we're trying to get away from that and be very politically correct and not talk about Jesus, in this church we'll talk about him because he is everything to us. To worship him, to reflect his glory in all that we do, he is the point. The focal point of human history, of our lives, of our church. And so God's wisdom is revealed in sending his son. But thirdly, he kept the promise in order to, number three, redeem his people. As we close here this morning, I could say a lot about that. I'll read a few verses, and then we'll move to communion. Genesis, I'm sorry, Galatians, rather, chapter 4, verses 5 through 7, to redeem his people. He says, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, an heir through God. Now, to review very briefly, two weeks ago we talked about redemption, looking at Isaiah pointing to Jesus, and how there's three main parts to redemption, to know what it really means. The first one is that something has been lost, that has to be recovered. And the second thing is that a price must be paid. And the third one is that someone must pay the price. Someone must redeem. And so oftentimes, talking about redemption in the scriptures, particularly in Exodus, 
it talks about slavery. And so what has been lost? Our freedom has been lost. And someone has to pay the price, the redemption price, to liberate us from freedom. And Jesus is the one that paid the price to free us from our slavery. If you're here today and you have never come to Christ, never repented of your sins, and placed your faith in Christ, then the truth is that you right now are enslaved to your sin. Now, that sounds really harsh, but it's in the Bible. It's not my words. I would never make this up. I would never say that to you. I would never say you're a slave. That's not very nice. The Bible says it, not me. I'm just the messenger. I just carry the mail. I, I didn't write the mail. And so here's the point. Humans let themselves are enslaved to sin, needing to be redeemed by someone who will pay the price. And so verse 4 is amazing. It says, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, an heir through God. Just stop for a second and just, just contemplate the profundity, the significance of that. You and I offended God. We sinned. We broke the law. We have earned judgment. The eternal Son of God becomes a human, comes to earth, suffers innocently, dies in your place, thus paying the price, your penalty, taking away your shame, and allowing you to be forgiven, to be freed from your slavery to sin, if that was all he did, that would be infinitely remarkable and beautiful. But he didn't just liberate you from your sin. He took you as a slave, and he adopted you into his family. He took the slave, paid the price to make him not, no longer a slave, but beyond that, a son a daughter, an heir to the kingdom. That, to me, is overwhelming. It is truly overwhelming to me when I stop and I contemplate the beauty of the gospel, how he's forgiven me, freed me from my slavery, and then adopted me into his family, where I can now call God Abba, Daddy, Father, and he won't delay. He will come to you. Maybe you think to yourself, oh, I've, I've gone too far from God. I could never come back. No, you haven't. There is hope. The message of this Christmas season is the message of the gospel that Jesus died for you, and he offers you eternal hope. And if you are a believer, we have to live this out. Do you believe this? I'm serious. Do you with all of your heart truly believe what we're talking about this morning? Because if you do, then it should change how you live. If you believe this, in here, not up here. If you believe it in here, then it should change how you think, how you treat your spouse, how you spend your money, what you give your heart to. It should impact everything. But you know what happens to us? We forget. 
We get amnesia. Now it's temporary, but we get amnesia. We really do. We, like we bonk our head. Oh, I forgot who am I? Oh, I forgot the gospel. We, we forget. We literally forget that we have been saved by faith alone, that we can't earn it, and we try to earn it. And it's really pathetic to watch ourselves trying to earn favor with God, something only Jesus could do. We forget. We have to be reminded. We must preach the gospel to ourselves every day. We need to experience growth. We need to experience community. We need to experience influence as we now go and influence others for the kingdom, for Christ. Every day, we must be doing these things so we don't forget. We're going to have an opportunity now to remember by observing communion. Communion is a way that we remember. But before we have communion, I'm going to ask the men to distribute the elements to come to the front and our praise team, please come to the front. And as, as they do, I want to pray for you and to prepare our hearts to partake of the Lord's table. If you are here today and you have heard this gospel of Jesus and for the first time you understand, oh, I really am a sinner and I really can repent and turn to Jesus and be forgiven, be justified, made right in God's eyes by faith. You can even, as we speak, cry out to God, ask him to forgive you and to save you, and he will. He will accept you. Communion is a time of reflection. It's a time where we consider how we've been following Jesus and what our hearts have been given to. And so as we prepare our hearts for them, as you respond to the promise and the true meaning of Christmas, I want to pray for you. Our loving Father, we are truly humbled this beautiful morning as we have gathered to worship you, to lift up your name, to truly know you and to make you known. We thank you for the cross. We thank you first and foremost for Christmas, where you kept your promise. You sent your son, born of a woman, in the fullness of time. But we thank you for Easter, where that son grew up, died as our sacrifice, and that has changed everything for as he is alive today, you have given us newness of life. I pray that you would help us to not forget, but to truly live this out every day. I pray that you would be with us now as we remember your sacrifice for us, Jesus, as we partake of these elements that we would do so with hearts that are full of joy as we celebrate but as also as we contemplate how we've been following you, Jesus. I thank you for the gospel. I thank you for your spirit that allows us to understand it. I thank you for your word. Thank you for our time together. We just pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a powerful symbol. It's a symbol that points to the very gospel itself, and so only believers in Christ should partake in communion. So if you're here today, you're not really sure what this means. You can allow the bread and, and the juice to pass. That's okay. There's no communion police, clearly. It's between you and God. But this is a very powerful spiritual expression for believers 
as we remember what Christ did. And so the, the bread symbolizes his body that hung on the cross for us, and, and the juice symbolizes his blood that was shed and that stained that accursed tree that he endured for you and that he endured for me. And so first, I'm going to ask Shane if he could please pray for the bread and distribute the elements. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you went to the cross willingly, Lord. We thank you that you took the pain of your, on your body, Lord. We thank you that you came and you took our place, that you paid the price for our sin. So, Lord, we're eternally grateful for that. We thank you that um, we can remember that you died in our place and we don't deserve that. And we thank you that by doing that, you've put us back in the right relationship with you, Lord. And that is so amazing. We are really grateful and we praise you for that. Thank you, Lord. Amen.